Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Um, I've got good news and some news that I'm not sure we'll find out. The good news is, is we're going to be um, going through this passage, seeing what John's trying to reveal about Christ to us, and that's exciting. Um, the other thing, we got 45 verses, so it's a lot of verses to go through. So, um, And the other thing is, I've only done this a few times, and I did it different than I've done other times. So I'm not sure if we'll be done it in 15 minutes or if it'll be one o'clock but either way no i'll make sure um so no i appreciate you guys this will be a fun passage to go through it's commonly um we we refer to this passage and we think about it as being the samaritan woman at the well in which it is but what i want to what i think john is drawing our attention to is yes there's a woman at the well that's in need of a savior but uh, most importantly, what stuck out and going through this passage is God's grace to mankind and to the world. So I titled it Sovereign Grace, and you'll see um, on the slide maybe. The first verse through six is where it, it kind of highlights God's intentional grace, where what he's doing, what Jesus is doing by being in Jerusalem with the Jews and then traveling to Samaria to be with the outcasts of the Jews, is he has intention, he has, and then he has personal, he has relational intention, he has relational grace, which is verses 7 through 26, and that's the interaction with the woman at the well. And then um, at the end there is, he, is his uh, portrayal of eternal grace and how he um, will tell the disciples that the, that the harvest is here. And so um, it's, it's going to be a fun passage to go through. Uh, a couple of the things that also, um, if we think back of last week in verse 3, there was some discrepancy, there was some, or some of the disciples was, was being like, hey, there's uh, more people are being baptized by Jesus' disciples than by John's disciples, and what's going on? And so John had to convince his followers he was leading or showing them Christ, and he said, he must increase and I must decrease. And I think we're going to see here how much John is trying to increase Christ. In this passage, Jesus is referred to over 50 times, whether it's the word Jesus or he or I. And it's the most, it's probably nearly every verse almost, there's a referral to Jesus. And so I feel like that is, I'm pretty certain that that's what John wants. He wants us to know him. So I'm going to pray here before we get started. I know we um, are told not to covet, but I do covet your prayers. I think that's a good thing to covet. So I'm going to pray and then we'll get started. Father God, we just, um, we thank you. We praise you and we look forward to um, seeing what this passage has for us this morning and help help truth to be spoken, and if anything that is 
uh, said that is uh, amiss or not true, that it would be uh, not remembered or um, that it would be corrected. So Father, we just, uh, we praise you, we love you, we ask this all in Christ's name, amen. So, seeing that we have 45 verses and 45 minutes, we'll get started. So the first part, verses 1 through 6, the intentional graces, John is kind of just setting this, he's setting the setting, I think I can say that, um, for the rest of the passage. And so we're going to go through just a little bit of history, a little bit of things, but it starts out, verse 1, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Some of the things, the intentional parts is, is says when Jesus knew, when he learned, when he knew, he he knew that it was time for him to leave Jerusalem. Things were arising. There was, he knew that there was going to be a confrontation between him and the Pharisees coming down the road that his hour was coming, but it, hadn't, it was not come. And he also knew that he had been sharing with the, the Jews there, and now it was time to take it to a people that uh, was highly disliked by the Jews and was the low, was the outcast of the of the area it also says that he had made he he had made jesus made and baptized more disciples than john though he himself did not baptize he intentionally did not baptize um i got to thinking some of the possible reasons was think about in that time or even nowadays like if if people were baptized by Jesus and then some by the disciples, the ones that were baptized by Jesus might feel like that they have a better baptism. You know, I was baptized by Jesus and you was just baptized by this person. I think this helps highlight that it's not the person that's doing the baptism. It's, it's the, it's why we're being baptized. And, um, the, the disciples baptized, they did, if you want to call it the work, um, here, just like we will be, Jesus will show us at the end of this chapter where he tells the, the disciples to be involved in the harvest. So there's a, there's a work to be done by believers um, when we're in Christ. It also says that he had to pass through Samaria. Now, this will be the brief history part. Um, so Jerusalem would have been south, and he was traveling to Galilee, and the, the shortest or straightest path was just straight north, which took you right through Samaria. But the Jews avoided, they avoided it, um, and they traveled around. They took a longer route, and this was due to the deep, there was a deep distrust and a dislike between the Jews and the Samaritans. Some of that reasoning is this. When the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom of Judah, they took the majority of the population back to Babylon, and they left behind the lowest classes of society because they didn't want these lowly regarded people in Babylon. Those left behind intermarried 
with other non-Jewish peoples who slowly came into the region. The Samaritans emerged as an ethnic and religious group. Now, I did not say all of that. That was commentary. I'm not that smart. Because the Samaritans had a historical connection to the people of Israel, their faith was a combination of commands and rituals from the laws of Moses, but together with various superstitions. Most of the Jews in Jesus' time despised the Samaritans, disliking them even more than Gentiles because they were religiously speaking. They were half-breeds who had an eclectic, mongrel faith. The Samaritans built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, which was burned by the Jews around 128 B.C., which then, I'm sure, fueled more hatred and things between them. So that kind of gives us the setting for who the Samaritans are in <clears throat> So it says Jacob's well was there, and there's some more history here, and then we'll get to the heart of the passage. And the city of Sychar was ancient Shechem, and it was the capital of the Samaritans. And Genesis 12, this is where Abram first came when he arrived into Canaan from Galilee. It's also where God first appeared to Abram in Canaan and renewed the promise of giving the land to him and his descendants. This is also where he built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord. In Genesis 33, it's where Jacob came safely when he returned with his wives and children. It's where, the, where he, bought, he purchased a piece of land from a Canaanite for 100 pieces of silver. And it's also the place where, if you were here with us when we went through Genesis, it's the place where Jacob had a daughter dying and she was raped by one of the people from this or the one of the the prince's son or whatever from the city and so since they were since he was not a jew jacob's sons deceived the whole town into saying hey since you're not part of us why don't you become circumcised so we can we can live together and we can marry together and we can have land together and then on the third day after circumcision then they massacred all the men of the city which is interesting because Jacob's sons were attempting to cleanse the unclean is what they thought they were doing. And here Christ comes and he doesn't attempt. He, he reveals himself to the unclean and then he offers the living water of salvation. John then tells us that Jesus was tired from his journey. I think he wants that he wants us to, to see and understand fully that this was a long journey and that Jesus was, he was, obviously he was thirsty, he was resting by the well around noontime during the heat of the day, would have been around the sixth hour. And John's careful to show us that Jesus is God, but he also wants us to know that Jesus was human and that the divine word that became flesh was fully flesh. And so he wants us to know these things. So now that we have this setting, we'll move on to the relational part of his grace. And so we look back at the intentional part, and it's because everything he does is intentional. It is a sovereign grace that he has. This was planned before he even came. The relational grace starts in verse 7. It says, the woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? 
for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. There was, there's a few things that is interesting about this, is, is that the, the woman came at an abnormal hour. We're not told why. Um, she came at an unusual hour. She came alone. A lot of times women would travel together in groups, maybe in the morning is what, you know, is, is the way history because it's not hot and they would travel together just like women like to go shopping today or it takes, when they're in school, it takes four to go to the bathroom or whatever it may be. They don't do anything alone, which is a good thing. They, but so perhaps there was a sudden need for water or perhaps she was a social outcast and shunned by other women in the community. We're, we're, we're not told this. We don't know. And I've so, therefore, these are some of the things, this is a familiar passage and there's assumptions that maybe we've kind of got in our hearts. But I want to caution us that we don't put something in the passage that's not. It's a, I think we can look at things and say these are possibilities. But that's, the point is, is, that is that's not the point. The point is Christ and what's going to be happening here. And when Jesus spoke to her uh, by tradition, a rabbi did not speak to a woman in public. And some rabbis wouldn't even speak to their wives in public. So this was a this was a stunning thing. So this is why that it was questionable to her. Um, and we need to understand the reason for the question. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? John felt that we John felt this was so well understood in his day that he he didn't give more explanation, probably. The hatred between the Jews and Samaritans was very great, like we said. This woman would have been despised by the Jewish leaders for numerous reasons. She was a woman. She was a Samaritan. She had a questionable reputation. Um, and it's interesting because in the, prayer, in the prior chapter, when we go back to chapter 3, if you remember John in his... Uh, not, or not John, Jesus, in his interaction with Nicodemus, the Pharisee. Nicodemus was a leader of the religious establishment. And he told him what he must do. And he must be born again. And so he shared the same thing with the leader of the religious establishment that he is now going to be share, he's sharing, going to be sharing with the despised of the religious establishment. So he came, he, he's, he has relation intent. He's, he's here for the highest, for the lowest, because honestly, we're all the same. <clears throat> so as we move on, we want to listen to our confusion as we read through verses 10 through 15. Verse 10 starts off, it says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given, given you living water. Now, Jeremiah refers to Jehovah as the fountain of living water. So Christ is, he's all about the spiritual part. She's not getting it. The woman said, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? She's, she's interested. She wants to know where this spring is to where the, it'll, her life could be easier she won't have to draw water from the well like where's this where's this place at 
And the one in, <clears throat> I just read that. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Reminded here that whenever and whatever we try to use to quench our thirst from this world leaves us thirsty. And so he's, he's just reminding her that this, this water, what I'm offering you, you're not, you're not seeing it yet. But he's, he does say, what, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is referring to the spiritual thirst here for, of our souls. And when we receive that living water, which is given and not worked for, I think that's something we need to remember, that it fills us and overflows. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. The response of the Samaritan woman was, it was logical. We can understand it, but it wasn't spiritual yet. She wanted it to be easy, and she was basically saying, hey, I want it, I want it easier. Jesus was drawing the woman into conversation. Um, his grace is intentionally relational and the woman does not recognize him as the messiah until he reveals himself to her how many times i get a question how many times are am i or are we confused about things if we truly know him and have a deep relationship with him our confusion turns to peace and understanding and if if you're here today and you know him as your savior, continue to ask for him to be revealed. And if you're here today and you don't know him, cry out and ask for your eyes to be open because I can't do it. You can't do it. It's only, it's only Christ that can do it. Moving on to John 16 or 416, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And here's where I want to mention, too, kind of like we just did about not knowing why she came to the well. Different commentaries, a lot of people think, you know, the way we read this, there's, while she had five husbands, the one she, she currently is with is not her husband. And we don't know, we don't know about the five husbands. It could very well be that she had five husbands and moved from one to another. It also could be it was, would have been their law back then that if a brother died and then, then, he would, the other brother that's living would take his wife. There could have been a large family. There's a lot of scenarios that it could be. This is, again, where John doesn't give us insight into this. And I'm only saying this because sometimes when we read things like this, we look at someone as like, oh, wow, they're a really bad sinner. And we can maybe lift ourselves or make ourselves feel 
more righteous because I haven't done that bad a sin. But what what Christ is pointing out, there is sin here. She is living with someone that is not her husband. We know that. And so I'm not wanting to lighten the depth of her sin. I'm wanting to show us that we are the same. Jesus came to... He came to show every one of us our sin and realize that we are all just as deep and in need of a Savior. And I'm, it's interesting, too, how he does not, he does not condemn her of, her of her sin right there. He, it's, it, it's also what we're going to see here, and I think John maybe 8 or 9, where the, there's a woman that's caught in the uh, act of adultery, and so the religious leaders, they bring her to Jesus or they're going to stone her. And, you know, he's like, hey, he has his talk with him about the one that's without sin, cast the first stone. And she, after they all leave, she looks up and, and he says, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. Jesus came, John three sixteen. it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, for whoever does, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And I feel like Possibly one of the reasons why that Jesus did not offer any condemnation because he knows that she's going to believe in him. So um, we are all sinners and we were all condemned until he bridged that gap. Verse 19 goes on. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At the beginning of this narrative, the, the woman, she feels like she thinks he's a prophet. She still hasn't seen him until the end of this. And she, we don't know. It's, it could be, it, it feels like she's almost, attempting to change the subject when he presses in all of a sudden tells her all these things about her life and she had five you know her five husbands and the one she's with and so it's it's almost like um she could be a little bit uncomfortable maybe not i don't want to assume i'm just saying it's it's interesting how she wants to change the hey you're a spiritual guy let's talk about something else and talk about where we should worship or maybe it was just an honest question But he says, you worship what you do not know, which kind of reveals their mixed up religion. Um, 
the, the Samaritans worship there on Mount Gerizim, and they pretty much use the five books, five the first five books of the Bible, and then they mixed it with other things from other cultures as they intermarried. And he then says, "We know what we worship," and so it makes he's making it clear that who she is and. You're a Samaritan and I'm a Jew, but yet it's, it's in a loving and nice way. Um, so he's, he had hit on Nicodemus on their religious things, and he's also hitting, and so he's, he's trying to tear down here all the religious things that don't apply to worshiping God. He says, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. So he's, Jesus is pointing to a time when worship will no longer be focused on places. So it's not going to be focused on the temple or whether it's in Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim. The greater work of Jesus would bring a greater, more spiritual and relational worship. As it goes on, it says God is spirit. And he goes on, he says God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And here Jesus describes the basis for true worship. It's not found in places and things, but in spirit and truth. And to worship in spirit means that it means that we we're concerned with spiritual realities, uh, and we're not not in we're not concerned with places of worship or outward sacrifices or cleansing or legalism or all the things that just predominantly will surround religion. To worship in truth means that we want to worship according to the whole counsel of God's word, not just parts of it, not things that we like or things that apply. And so God is truth. And so when we listen to the whole counsel of him, is when uh, is a way to worship in truth. In verse 25, it said, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, and he who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Know this woman was a sinner um, and an outcast and, you know, didn't, wasn't a Jew. She, they, she still knew enough that was still, that they had enough of the old law that she knew a, a Messiah was coming. And so she was, she, she was looking, but she just didn't recognize him yet until he revealed himself to her. And so we see again that his grace is relational. He wants that personal relationship. We move on to the eternal grace part of it in verses 27 through 45. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to them. When the disciples came back, they marveled the same way that in a similar way that she marveled probably when Jesus spoke to her, because here they're seeing their master speaking not only to a woman, but a Samaritan woman. And, and yet they obviously, you could see their 
relationship with Christ was to the point that they they knew him enough in our stream. It's like, what's he doing? But yet we trust him and we know he's doing what's right. And uh, so it's just interesting because they they questioned, but they kept it in their hearts. Um, the woman was so excited, it says, or she was that she was so eager to get back to the people in town that she left her water jar. And I think, I think John, he, well, I know he, everything in scripture is there for a reason, but I think he's just wanting to just show us the, the impact that Christ had on her. Um, she went back to the town. She, she, it would be like going to, I mean, this is a poor analogy. It's not near as good, but it would be like going to town and shopping and, a mire and fill in your grocery cart and then just walking out and not even remembering what you went to town for or did anything like she went to the well to get water and then she had this interaction she was so excited to get back she was like leave this alone and so I think I think that's it was just an interesting thing that John noted and I think it can be even applied to our lives that when we're when he speaks to us and when we know him the things that we think matter, we need to just leave them behind. We need to just leave them behind and go on with our day by interacting with other people and sharing him with other people. She ran back and said, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? So this lady was so impressed that when she went back to the city, she was no longer, no no matter what her past was, we're not certain of it. We just can assume things, but she had no problem saying all these people that may have shunned her or whatever it may be, um, she was, she was open about it. She was transparent. And I think that's, I think that's a good thing for us to remember that when we, when we know him, and we share with other people. We want to be transparent. We want to be open and honest with other people because that's effective. She was impressed because, um, or the woman's invitation was effective to the people. The people came when she told them. So they obviously knew her somewhat but they also knew her enough to see that her life was impacted. They believed her. They, they, they came out and they followed and wanted to come see who was at the well. Verse 31 goes on. It says, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish his work. Here again, we're reminded again of his love and patience towards, towards all of us because he could have easily said, I just had a conversation for however long with this lady trying to get my point across, and now you don't understand what I'm saying. Like you, have, you of all people should understand what I'm saying. And but he's loving and he's a patient savior. 
he's not saying that food, drink, and rest are not, are not important. Is that a double negative? He's not saying that they're not important. Anyway, you know that you get what I'm saying. Instead, he was trying to show the disciples. He was just showing them more about himself. So it wasn't just the woman at the well. It was everyone that he interacted with that man does not live by bread alone. He said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. In these words, um, commentary Morgan says, in these words, our Lord revealed the secret of his strength and that of the weakness of his disciples. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. So Jesus had a greater, he had a greater source of strength and satisfaction than the food that he ate. He explained to his disciples that his true satisfaction was to do the will of his God and Father. And I think the same applies to us as believers, that the things that bring us fulfillment and true satisfaction is when we're in tune with our Savior and we're doing the will of the Creator. Because how many times, if you're anything like me, I like doing a lot of things and you think, oh, this will be fun. This will be great. Or, you know, we're going to go on vacation or we're going to have this or that. And a lot of times it doesn't, a lot of times the dream is better than the reality because um, we're placing maybe too much fulfillment on that reality, on that, what we're going to do. This is the case, though, what Christ is talking about when we're, in, when we're talking about spiritual things. The, uh, I think the dream is very small compared to the reality of being with him forever. First and foremost, his focus was on doing the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He found, Jesus found satisfaction not merely in starting the work of God, but finishing it. And there's three things that, um, things to note that Jesus, he was surrendered to the Father's will. He was on a mission that had eternal ramifications, and he was, he also came to finish his work. And I'm reminded there of um, John 19:30. It says that it, there's similar wording where when Jesus used on the cross, when he cried, it is finished. And so his, his work was to accomplish the will of the Father. Verse 35 goes on. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. And see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor." So he's pressing in further and helping, helping the disciples understand what is good for us to understand. He's wanting them to know that, hey, it's not like harvest on this earth and where you plant and then you wait four months. And I think that's what farmers do. They just kind of plant and then they don't do anything for four months. And then 
I'm sure my son-in-law will correct me on that one. But anyway, he's saying, don't sit around and wait for something to happen. The time is now and the harvest will continue. It says, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they are already white for harvest. White for harvest meaning it's, things are ripe. They're, they're overripe, if anything. Like it's, it's high time. Jesus, he used these, this idea of food and harvest to communicate spiritual needs. Uh, the idea of harvest means there were so many people ready to be received into the kingdom of God and that the disciples should see themselves as workers and reapers in that harvest. It says the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Jesus encourages his disciples in their work with at least three ways here. He says their work in the harvest will be rewarded. It says he who reaps receives wages. And the good of their work would last forever. So you're going to be gathering fruit for eternal life, not just for a season. And every worker in the harvest will rejoice together in the work. And um, I think those are some of the reasons why it's good when we get together to not only share our like prayer requests and what our petitions, but it's great to share praises because it's a rejoicing. We get to rejoice together now and we get to rejoice together in the future. He said, I sent you to, to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. The disciples were now ready, able to reap harvest immediately. And they reaped it from seeds they didn't sow. John the Baptist and Jesus had been sowing seeds. And at the moment, the disciples had the opportunity to reap. Many times, this is how the work of God happens. 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 8, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. Each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. We are, you are God's field, God's building. I think that's a good thing to remember that we are to plant. We plant seeds when we talk to people. Um, we may water seeds that others have planted, but it's only God that gives the increase. And I think sometimes we get, we can get discouraged. You know, we think, well, we've been, we've been talking to this coworker or friend or whatever. And I think we need to be reminded that just continue to share truth because only God can reveal himself. It's we can't reveal himself. We can't reveal him to others. We, he can do that work through our words, but we can't personally do it. And I think there's multiple reasons for that. Um, some is, is God just isn't ready to reveal himself to that person. And some is, is that maybe, maybe the person you've been talking to and planting a seed with 
someone else in another town will get to, uh, maybe they'll be encouraged by seeing the growth and by the watering and seeing that happen. And so I think, I think it's a grace of God that we don't always know the outcome of planted seeds because if we knew the outcome of planted seeds, I know I personally would probably, we would be tempted to take credit. And so I think there's times where we don't see things because God knows maybe it's best that we don't and it's better for someone else. And so his sovereignty in all of this is very important to remember and that he is the one that gives the increase. We're called to go forth and make disciples in Matthew 28. Just like we saw in the beginning of this passage, the disciples were the ones baptizing. Jesus is now telling the disciples to witness and take in the harvest. The harvest is still happening, and we are to be workers in the harvest. Many Samaritans from that, it goes on in verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked, him to stay with them and he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word they said to the woman it is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world after the two days he departed for galilee for jesus himself had testified that a prophet was has no honor in his own hometown so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. As many of the Samaritans of that city believed him. So at, at that moment, they didn't know enough, because Jesus had not died on the cross. They didn't know enough to know the fullness of what he came for. But they certainly believed that he was the Messiah of God. And they, and they believed because of the word of the woman who testified. And so it just shows you the importance of sharing with others through our day-to-day, -day, that the importance of testifying who Christ is. Once we do that, then if he opens their eyes, then they will engage deeper and have a deeper and they'll believe more so their uh, their unbelief more unbelief will be revealed to him she says he told me all that i ever did the woman was amazed not only that jesus knew the facts of her life but that he loved her even knowing the facts of her life sometimes we we fear that if someone knew everything about us that they could and or won't love us but jesus loved the woman and so i just want to encourage all of us to if you're struggling with things if you're struggling with sin if you're struggling with things reach out to someone in your small group a friend someone that you know you can trust that is going to give you may not be what you want to hear, but it's what you need to hear. So you want, you, or you want to choose someone that you know is going to lovingly guide you 
to the gospel and to what Christ has for you. Another interesting thing is, is that he stayed there two days. So this would have been another thing that was probably really remarkable to the Samaritans because not only was a Jew supposed to skirt way around town and not even come into town, he came into town and then not only did he do that, he obviously ate and drank with them and stayed there in town for two whole days. So the impact that he had on them was, it had to be big. And it says many more believed of his teachings in the town. The ones that, that initially believed the woman's testimony gained a deeper belief after hearing the words of Christ directly. And this, that's no different than today, like I was just saying. So as we wrap this up, one of the things that we, that we talked about in Vision Night was that um, we were going to focus this year on witness. And I feel like this is, this is an excellent passage to show us how witness happens and what it should look like. Um, we need to be intentional and we need to be relational because especially in today's day and age, it's, People don't, people are hard to, tr like, if they don't trust you, they're not going, you're not going to be able to effectively share. So a lot of it is just those close conversations of showing and actually caring. So we need to ask God to give us a care, give us a love for other people to where we, to where we're vested in them and we can understand them. I'll be honest, there's times I've had conversations with people for a few minutes five or ten minutes but I'm kind of zoned out or I'm thinking of someone else that I want to talk to that I'm not paying attention like we, we have to listen and actually pay attention we have we and we can we need to ask God to give us that desire so to be an effective witness there's a there's a small book um, if you're not much of a reader it's a good little quick read and even if you like to read a lot, it's just a good little quicker reader. But it's, uh, it's called Making Disciples One Conversation at a Time. And I really enjoyed that book because it just, it, sh it really gets into the personal relation, that personal connection with people and um how that is so needed to be effective because just like Christ was, he was, he was making disciples one conversation at a time. He went to the woman at the well, just every interaction he had. So I'm going to pray to that end that we can take, um, take his truth, the whole truth, and that we worship in spirit and truth and all that we do and that we can, Christ is trying to shatter all the religious things of the day whether it was on one end of the spectrum or the other end of the spectrum like to get rid of everything that is not worship of him and so I want to pray to that end and encourage you guys that we could encourage each other that we would be witnesses for him Father God we just uh, we praise you we thank you for 
for having sovereign grace and that you uh, intentionally came, that you saw us before the foundations of the world were even created in the depths of our sin, um, whether it be someone like the woman at the well or whether it be a religious elite like Nicodemus or whether it be us, Father, we, we are all the same. We are condemned sinners without you. And so, Father, we just thank you. We praise you for, for redeeming us, for bridging that gap between um, us and the Father. And continue, we ask that you would enlighten us, work in our hearts, reveal yourself to us. And, Father, if there's ones here that do not know you, we we plead. We plead that uh, that eyes would be open. And Father, we, we pray that that we would all be vessels for you and that we would that you would work through us and that we would be effective witnesses not for us not for our not for our praise or glory but for yours and yours alone so father encourage and strengthen each one as we as we may plant or water and help us that we would um see and that we would praise you for the growth that we see as you work in others lives we love you and ask this in christ's name